Now, you probably already know this already, but I think I've talked about it a couple of different times. I like roller coasters. I love roller coasters. I mean, if you guys went to Magic Mountain Day with me, with uh, uh, in the summer, and I was there. You know, I love roller coasters. You know, I love roller coasters probably because I even told you that I worked at Six Flags Magic Mountain. So, uh, this is not something I think this is that's uh, not obvious to you or anything like that. But you know, I don't know how much you're aware of this, but most roller coasters don't just launch you off like a rocket ship, right? Most roller coasters don't shoot you out like you're being shot out of a cannon. Most of them have what is called a lift hill, a lift hill. And a lift hill is really just a part of the ride where the train attaches to a chain and it carries you up to the top of the hill. Uh, it's the slowest part and it usually is the most boring for most people, okay? But the lift hill is not completely worthless. And I think, and I, I, I I can really think of two particular reasons why it's not, okay? Two reasons why it's not completely worthless. First, a lift hill is needed so that you can uh, go high enough so it can drop you throughout the rest of the ride, right? You, you get To be able to actually, like, you know, go through the ride, you actually have to go up a certain, you know, distance and let gravity do the rest, okay? Uh, the, the trains on roller coasters aren't propelled by gas or by electricity or anything like that, right? There's no fire coming out the back of them or anything like that, usually. Uh, but that's just kind of the way it goes, right? Normally, they have to actually free fall with gravity. And so you have to take them up really high and drop them. But the second reason why lift hills are important, and this is probably the most important reason for our discussion this morning, a lift hill builds anticipation. A lift hill builds, builds anticipation. Uh, oftentimes, slowly going up a hill before you drop is just what you need uh, to be able to get the adrenaline going before you even start the ride, right? Like that's like, sometimes for some people, that's like the most scariest part of the ride is just going up the lift hill because it's like, what's going to happen? I have no idea, right? And, you know, just here's a good example of that. Uh, Tatsu. How many of you guys have been on Tatsu at Six Flags? A uh, handful of you guys. So if you, for those of you guys who know Tatsu, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those, for those, for those of you guys who don't, Tatsu is a unique roller coaster because well, normally when you sit in a roller coaster, you're kind of sitting like this, right? Well, your legs aren't sticking out, but <laughs> hopefully not, or else you're going to die. But, you know, you got your, like, shoulder harness and stuff like that, and you're really excited, and, you know, there's, like, this uber excitement, right? And so you go up this hill, right, and then you drop and everything. But in Tatsu, the problem is that the, the, the train is, like, below the track. And so you're actually dangling. And, and actually, you're dangling this way, like it's got you like positioned this way instead of like upside down or something like that. Uh, and so the idea is you're facing the ground as you're going up like 200 feet in the air and then it's going to drop you. That's terrifying. Like to me, that's the most terrifying part of the ride because you're just sitting there with nothing but a restraint holding you in as you're facing the ground. So it really builds a, a massive amount of anticipation uh, and, and it's extremely suspenseful. Uh, but really, bottom line, it doesn't matter what roller coaster you go on, all lift hills build anticipation to one degree or another. That's just the reality. And that's kind of the point of a lift hill in, in one sense. Well, our series, Through the Ten Commandments, started with a lift hill. It started with a lift hill uh, through the first three <laughs> messages that we looked at. We talked about what the Ten Commandments are not, 
right? They're not just like a bunch of rules. They're not in random order or anything like that. We discuss some of the benefits that you will be able to take away when this is all said and done, right? Like, for example, they will help you to think and live biblically, things like that. And we also surveyed the context of the Ten Commandments, like how the Ten Commandments are embedded in a constitution and a covenant and a sermon and things like that. And all these things are necessary topics before we dive into the Ten Commandments. And I hope that they have built some anticipation for you along the way. And uh, now, for the last couple of weeks, we have finally cleared the top of this lift hill, and we're actually beginning to race our way down the hill, okay? And we have finally dived into the Ten Commandments themselves to, uh, generally speaking, not like in depth, but, but a little bit. And specifically, we are trying to answer the important question, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And that's a really, really important question. Uh, and what we found out the last couple of weeks is, number one, the Ten Commandments are meant to broadcast who God is and what he's all about. I mean, the Ten Commandments are really like one big advertisement for God. Uh, in other words, the Ten Commandments are trying to sell you on the greatness of God. It's kind of like Girl Scouts, you know? When Girl Scouts sell you cookies and things like that, you know, they're like, hey, buy our Thin Mints and buy our peanut butter patties and stuff like that. You know, the Ten Commandments are trying to sell you God himself. That's really what they're trying to do. And they're really saying, buy into God. He's worth it. And so when you choose to live out the Ten Commandments, you become God's biggest salesman. That's really what you do. You, you become a salesman for God. And no salesman makes the stuff he's trying to sell look bad, right? You know, a car salesman's not going to, like, point out all the bad things about the new you know, 2016 Mazda or something like that, right? No, he's not going to do that. He's going to point out all the wonderful things about buying it. And so by living out the Ten Commandments, you make God attractive. You make God attractive. You are broadcasting who he is and what he's all about to everyone around you. Number two, though, we learned that the Ten Commandments are meant to show your love for God by your love for others. It's true, each commandment tells us something about God, but there are two major divisions you can break the Ten Commandments up into. And that's what we talked about last week. The first four commandments, the first four commandments have to do with your relationship with God. And that's where the division lies. The first four commandments have to do with your relationship with God. The last six commandments have to do with your relationship with others, people in this world, okay? And so that's, that's, that's pretty easy to figure out, I think. And I think some of you guys you know, were aware of this even before I you know, discussed it with you. But, but that's how this is broken up. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Because each commandment from the first half partners with some of the commandments on the second half. And that was kind of the unique twist that we kind of learned last week. Uh, in other words... There are, there are special groups that form within the Ten Commandments. And I like to kind of think about it this way, okay? It's kind of like ballroom dancing, okay? It's like ballroom dancing. Uh, there are two groups of people in ballroom dancing, right? What are the two groups of people? Come on. That's true. There are, there are men and there are women, okay? That, that's, that's basically the two kinds of groups, right? There are men 
and there are women. But it's not as if the gentlemen and the ladies never mix, right? It's not like the whole point of ballroom dancing is that they mix together and they start dancing, right? That's the whole point. Well, each gentleman picks a lady to dance with. That's the idea. And each of the first four commandments picks a partner from the other side to tangle with, okay? Now, here's the catch, though. Here, here's, the, here's where my analogy breaks down a little bit. Commandments can take more than one partner. Okay? They can dance in groups, okay? That's really more or less the idea. And so what we saw last time, and pardon me, but I'm going to erase this. Wonderful, beautiful drawing. But what we saw last time was that the first two commandments partner with the fifth commandment. And the third commandment partners with six, seven, eight, and nine. That's a big group for dancing. And the fourth commandment partners with the tenth commandment. That's what we saw last time. And so for those of you guys who weren't here, you might be like, what on earth just happened? Okay? But that's what we talked about last time. And if you're like, really? Does that actually like is that true? Is that, is that the idea of the Ten Commandments? Yes, it is. We discussed it last week. And if you're like, well, how does that work? I can't explain it right now. Just It would take an, another sermon to explain it. So, But if you need to know why and how that works, we can talk afterwards, okay? Or you can just listen to the sermon when I get it up online. So, um, But that's the idea, okay? There's, there's kind of a structure within the structure of the Ten Commandments, okay? And so... Really, the idea here is that the first grouping, this group, one, two, and five, communicates that you are a person who cares about God's authority. Now, obviously, if you have no other gods in life, in your life, and you don't really make any idols or anything like that, you demonstrate that you value God's authority over your life. But you can also show God's authority in your life by submitting to the authority of your parents. That is true as well. And so you show your love for God by your love for others. You show your commitment to God's authority by your commitment to human authority. See how that works? So these go together. And then we saw how the third commandment connects with 6, 7, 8, and 9. And the idea behind this one is that uh, it proclaims that you treat God with respect. <coughs> What's the third commandment? You guys should know this by now. Third commandment. Yeah. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's right. The idea behind that is I take my relationship with God seriously. I take my relationship with God seriously, okay? And, and so you can show that by not taking his name in vain, but you can also show that by, doing, uh, by not doing acts like murdering or committing adultery or stealing or bearing false witness, okay? You say, I take God seriously because he's God. I take humans seriously because they're humans made in the image of God. Okay, that's the idea. So that's, that's why they're grouped together. The fourth and the tenth commandment go together, and this kind of proclaims that you respect God's ownership over your life. If you believe that God is your authority and you take him seriously, then you will give him every, ac- every access, to, or sorry, access to every part of your life. Okay? And so the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy, which is like, that's kind of weird, but the idea behind that is, Every part of my life, my time, my resources, uh, all the stuff I own, people in my life, they all belong to God. They all belong to God. And so you say, I respect that God has ownership over every part of my life. Well, then if that's the case, I'm not going to covet what other people have because other people 
own things and I don't own them, and so I'm going to respect that. So again, you love God by loving others, and you show your love for God by showing your love for others. Now, I know this was kind of a bit of a long review, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page here, okay? Uh, We're not used to thinking about the Ten Commandments this way. We're not. And part of the problem is we just, you just, we, we haven't, we probably just haven't done a good job studying them over the years and, and taking the time to really invest them. And that's why we're, we're taking the time now to really go through this because this is going to set up how we live the Christian life, okay? Especially this second point, you show your love for God by your love for others. This is the method by which we operate as a Christian. That's how we live the Christian life today is this kind of framework that I've created here. Well, not I've created, the, the Bible created it, but I'm just borrowing it, so... Uh, but that's, that's the idea here. So <clears throat> I think sometimes we think that the Ten Commandments are just kind of rules. We just kind of leave them right there and just like, ah, oh, they're just rules to follow. That's true. They're rules. But they really are much more than rules. They communicate something. Okay? They communicate something. But there is something else communicated by the Ten Commandments. And so now what I want to do is turn our attention to the third and final purpose of the Ten Commandments this morning. Okay? I want to finish our free fall down our roller coaster. And to be able to do that, let me explain it this way. I think the, the first purpose, you broadcast who God is and what he's all about, I think that's the first and most important purpose. That is fundamental. The second one here, show your love for God by your love for others, I think that's the most helpful one. That's the most helpful of the three. But this last one, is the most beautiful and inspiring in my mind, okay? This is the most beautiful and inspiring. The last purpose should give you incentive to live out the Ten Commandments, okay? When we're all said and done, this should give you the motivation to live out the Ten Commandments. And so in order to get our discussion going, I want to unearth our final purpose in the most unlikely of places. I want us to explore the opening chapters of the, of, your, uh, uh, of the Bible. I want to go to the, the first pages of the Bible. And so please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, okay? Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> the last two Sundays, we've really spent our time in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is where the Ten Commandments are. And that's where you might expect us to be this morning, but I actually want to take a detour through Genesis, Okay? Because I think this is really going to help us see this third and final purpose. Genesis is, is the book of the Bible that describes for us how the world was made. Uh, Genesis is the account that tells us how, uh, how a man named Adam was created by God. And, and he planted a, a garden called Eden and put Adam in it to tend it and to till it. Genesis is the record of the fall where both Adam and his wife Eve took of the forbidden fruit and ate it and and turned the fate of humanity upside down because of their sin. And so this morning, I want to spend the bulk of our time here in Genesis. Now, I mentioned several weeks ago that Magic Mountain has tour guides, right? Magic Mountain has tour guides. Uh, They can show you around the park and kind of point out different things and give you all kinds of different trivia and stuff like that. Well, unfortunately, Magic Mountain is really nothing to look at. Okay, it's just a bunch of steel tracks and dirty pavements and things like that, right? I mean, it has cool rides, 
but it's really kind of crummy. I mean, that's kind of Magic Mountain. That's just the nature of the way it is. Uh, they, they put their money in their rides. They don't put it in making everything look all pretty and nice. Disneyland, on the other hand, is quite a spectacle to behold. And like Magic Mountain, it also can give you a tour. Uh, it has tour guides that can walk you around the park and show you different stuff. In fact, one of the tours is called Welcome to the Disneyland Resort Tour. How original of a name. Welcome to the Disneyland Resort Tour. Uh, you're Disneyland. How can you, can you come up with a better name than that? I mean, seriously, like, welcome to the Disneyland Resort Tour. I don't know. But that's the name of this tour, okay? Uh, and as Disney describes it, and I quote, this tour is perfect for anyone who wants to make the most of their Disney day. Whether it's your first visit or your 50th, your tour guide will provide facts, tips, and trivia to make your visit to Disneyland Park and Disney California Adventure Park even more memorable. End quote. The job of this Disneyland tour uh, guide is to take you around the park and point out to you all the impressive craftsmanship, the exciting attractions, and the unique ingenuity that went into making this one-of-a-kind theme park. Well, I want to be your tour guide this morning, okay? I want to take you on a journey through the Garden of Eden. And I want to point out to you all the breathtaking artistry and the perfect harmony and the brilliant creativity that went into making such a one-of-a-kind planet, okay? This, is, this will take us the majority of the rest of our time this morning, and I didn't even really even give you any notes to write down on your piece of paper there. All you have is like your third and final point to write down. There is space for you to take notes, and so if you're welcome to take notes if you want, but I would rather you sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride for a little bit, okay? This is the one time where I'm kind of letting you off the hook not to really take any notes here, okay? And here's why. We're going to blitz through a lot of material about the creation account, okay? We're going to go through a lot of stuff. But when we are all said and done, we will arrive at our final destination and discover the third and final purpose of the Ten Commandments, and then we will be able to be in a better position for you to take notes here, okay? So, I mean, have you ever tried to, like, take notes while riding a roller coaster? It just doesn't work, okay? So, so don't even try, okay? Because we're just going to go fast. Uh, and so... Buckle up and pull down your over-the-shoulder harness as far as it will go, and let's enter into the world as it first was, okay? Genesis 1, verse 1, very familiar verse, probably one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Picture nothing, nothing, emptiness, space, darkness. Imagine perfect silence, quiet, peace, stillness. This is the way the universe first was. There was nothing except God. That's the way the universe was. And then boom, out of nowhere, the earth in the heavens, the universe appeared. And that's how everything started. Oh, there was a big bang, all right. There was a big bang. But it was God creating the heavens and the earth. Creation is nothing without God. Creation is nothing without God. God is its architect. 
And the first thing I want you to see on our tour through the beginning moments of creation is that the creation story doesn't focus on a new planet. It doesn't. You are you're not tuned in uh, to hearing the clap of thunder when everything comes into existence. You aren't focused on the formation of, of a planet and stars and a moon and things like that. You first see God. You first see God. Creation is first and foremost about him. Just let your eyes scan down Genesis chapter 1. Who is the subject of nearly every verb? Who is the initiator of every action? God. God. This story is about God. Verse 1, God created. Verse 3, God said. Verse 4, God saw. Verse 4 again, God separated. Verse 5, God called. Verse 7, God made. Verse 17, God placed. Verse 22, God blessed. Chapter 2, verse 2, God completed. Verse 3, God rested. What is creation about? It's about God. It's about God. God is the center. God is the creator. You can walk down Disneyland's Main Street USA at the beginning of the park, where it has all those you know, gift shops and coffee shops and candy shops and shops for <laughs> everything you could possibly imagine. You can enjoy all the fun there is to have, and, and you can admire all the flair there is to see. But what's the big thing down Main Street USA that's supposed to catch your attention? For those of you guys who went to Disneyland, what's the big thing? What's the big thing you see? The castle. That's right. The castle. Why? Because it's in the center of your path. Everything else is on the side. It's on the peripheral. And so everything is actually kind of pointing you to the castle. God is at the center of creation. Everything that is created points back to him. He is the most grand and beautiful component of the creation story because he is its designer. Okay? And so God creates the heavens and the earth. And then God creates light to separate the darkness in verse 4. And this was all done on the first day. And then on the second day, God didn't actually create water per se because that was actually created when the earth was formed. But what did he do? He separated the waters out on the second day, much like he separated the light from the darkness. Now, now there was water in the sky, and then there was water below the, sky, below the sky, okay? So there's two different sets of waters was kind of the idea. And so really kind of the picture that we have here, and just imagine this for a moment, God takes his hands and parts the waters of the world and begins to mold the earth into a spherical shape with this water. It's really kind of a stunning picture. And then he kind of like throws land in there and kind of, mixes it up and, and forms it and hardens it, kind of like a potter does with clay. And so that's kind of the image we get here. It's this really, uh, really stunning picture. On the third day, as you no doubt well know, God allows plants and all sorts of vegetation to grow all over the globe, right? And this is the first time that we see that things in the world have a proper place. Things have a proper place. And we see this because verse 11 says that all the plants were created according to their kind. According to their kind. Nothing is by accident and nothing is out of place. Everything has a purpose 
and everything belongs to a family. That's the way God designed the world. And after God creates the stars and the planets on the fourth day, we see this idea amplified on the fifth day when God allows fish in the sea and birds in the sky to populate according to their kind. We see the same thing on the sixth day with the animals in verses 24 and 25. And what God is doing here is he's organizing the earth. He's organizing the earth. One of the most captivating qualities about Disneyland's beauty is its order and consistency. It's order and consistency. Everything is carefully thought out and laid out, right? Everything is carefully planned out and carried out. Everyone has a role in the park and they know what they're doing, right? Every staff member. And it creates this epic environment that is, that is kind of like something out of a movie, right? And of course, that would be the case because it's supposed to feel like a Disney movie. That's kind of the idea. There are so many moving parts all working in unison in an organized fashion because everyone knows their proper place and everything is in its proper place. God's creation has order. It has consistency. It has so many moving parts all doing what they're supposed to be doing. Everything is according to its kind. And finally, we reach the capstone of creation itself on day six. In verse 26, God creates man. God creates man. Look at Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26 here. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the uh, cattle and over, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God says, man will be my capstone because man has been made in my image. Just as I am the creator and master of the, over creation, man gets to be a master over creation as a reflection of my authority. That's the idea of what it means to be made in the image of God. We rule over this world as kind of the top dog because God is the ultimate top dog in the universe okay that's the idea the rest of creation was made for man not man was made for creation that's not the way it works okay and so in verse 28 God blesses man and he encourages him to be fruitful and to multiply just like every plant and every animal were made according to its kind mankind fits into the same pattern of reproduction families are going to be important there's going to be a need for parents and structure in the home, okay? And so the family unit is really going to be an important part of creation. Now, the beginning of chapter 2 concludes the days of creation for us. On the seventh day, God rested. God rested. God stopped the work he had done, and he set up a day of rest that was supposed to never end. Imagine that. No work. No toil. No, no school. Like, that would be awesome, right? Uh, Disney prides itself in being the happiest place on earth, doesn't it? That's what it, that's what it calls itself, okay? I don't, know how, I don't know how it can call itself that, but I guess it does. So uh, it can say that, though, because it staffs the park so well, you hardly have to lift a finger, finger to do anything. Like, everything is just provided for you, like, on a silver platter. 
just given to you, okay? Now, you do have to fork out a ton of money, and you do have to, you know, wait in excruciatingly long lines from time to time, right? But you don't have to operate the rides. You don't have to make the food. You don't have to create the Disney atmosphere. You don't have to, like, jump in the parade and create it for yourself. You know, it's all done for you. It's all made to order, ready to go, right? God designed the world as it once was to be a permanent place of rest. All of creation used to be the happiest place on earth. It did. There was no place that wasn't happy. And so there was perfect harmony. There was endless happiness. And chapter 2, verse 4, in following, does kind of a slow motion recap of all of this for us. It, it recaps the six days of creation. And one of the major things that it points out for us is that God is at the center of creation. Uh, and then uh, it is amazing to find out, or sorry, if God is at the center of, cre of creation, then it is amazing to find out that he wants a relationship with man. God actually wants to be with mankind. We find this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, the Lord God. It uses the title, the Lord God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God. This is the first time we see the word Lord in the Bible. We see the name Lord. Capital O, sorry, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible. It's all capitalized. And it's like, well, why is that? Because that's God's special name for Yahweh. Yahweh. And Yahweh is a name that basically signifies God wants a relationship with the world. God wants a relationship with man. And so we see that God is a very relational being. He wants to have a relationship with us. He cares about what happens here. He cares about you. He does. And we see his care advertised by a certain tree in the garden of Eden. Look at verse 9. It says that the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was desirable to, uh, in appearance and that is good for food, even the tree of life in the midst of the garden. The tree of life. God caused the tree of life to sprout in the garden. And now you probably know from Sunday school that if Adam and, Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life, what would have happened? They would have lived forever, right? They would have lived forever. Now that's true. That's a big part of the tree of life. But there's more than that. The idea of the tree of life here is, to, is really to show that, this, that God is really all about life. And this world is all about life. The world he has created is infused with life. And God loves life. And man is the epitome of life. Genesis 2.7 says that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. He didn't do that with any of the animals, but he did it with man. And so man is kind of the epitome, uh, the the apex of life itself. So God loves man, and God loves life. And the tree of life isn't the only special tree in the garden, though. Verse 9 also tells us there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There's another tree. If the tree of, the life, of life symbolizes God's love for life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes God's right to say what is right and wrong in this world. Uh, eating from the tree of life would be fine because God loves life and you should too, 
But eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a bad idea because, one, God forbids it in verse 17, but two, because eating it is equal to saying, I get to say what is right and wrong. So if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are trying to step in God's shoes, and that's not going to happen. So God rules out eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gets to say what happens in his creation and what can't happen. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is off limits, and the tree itself illustrates God's right to say so. Okay? But there's something else, but there's something else in this creation story that is not off limits. Okay? And that is marriage. Marriage. Verse 21, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and he creates a woman out of one of Adam's ribs. And notice how Adam responds in verse 23. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 23 here. I need to turn my page. Adam says this, uh, and, uh, sorry, and the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a mean, man shall uh, leave his father and mother and shall uh, cling to his wife, and, and they shall become one flesh. God made a relationship with man, right? We know that. He committed himself to man. Man now promises to be committed to his wife in the same way. These are the first marriage vows in the Bible. This is the introduction to marriage, and this is the definition of it right here. And finally, verse 25 concludes this beautiful story with what might seem to be a really unusual line. Look at verse uh, 25. And the two of them were naked, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. This is unusual to us, but it's actually very important. There was no shame. There was absolutely no shame in this world. Everything was perfect. There was no distortion. And that's ultimately what defines this world as it once was. It was perfection. Everything was just right. It was just right. But, but, the world isn't right today, is it? It's not right today. Paradise is lost. It's lost. Where did it all go wrong? Chapter 3. Chapter 3, in walks sin, and everything goes sideways. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. A serpent is another word for a snake, right? We know the serpent. We know the snake. We know this to be Satan himself. This is Satan disguised as a snake. But notice that Genesis 3 treats him as just one of the animals. He's just one of the animals. Sure, he's more crafty. True, he's more devious, but he's just, he's an animal. He's an animal here, okay? And verses 2 through 6 tell us how Eve gets into a discussion with this animal, okay? Which is kind of weird, but it's true. And the most unthinkable thing happens here. Eve actually listens to the voice of this animal. She actually, she and her husband actually take the fruit from the forbidden tree and they eat it. They choose to listen to a created thing rather than their creator. They have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so now God was no longer first place in their lives. He's just one of many voices. And everything here 
begins to spiral out of control. Whereas before, humans were supposed to rule over creation as the image of God, now they have let creation rule over them. And this is backwards. This is idolatry. And whereas before, we, see, we saw everything was made according to its kind and lived up, that way, uh, lived up to it that way to this point, now for the first time, something steps outside of its own kind. Something breaks the pattern and upsets the order. Everything had its proper place. But this time, this time, they wanted nothing to do with God's order. This is covetousness. This is covetousness. But the two of them didn't just want their cake. They wanted to actually eat it too. Whereas before, man could eat from any tree in the garden except the, knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now verse 6 says, man took from it and ate it. They robbed from God. Mankind robbed from God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't belong to them, but they took from it anyways. This is stealing. This is stealing. And so, whereas before they were people who were naked and not ashamed, now verse 7 tells us that their eyes were opened and they became aware of their nakedness and they were completely put to shame. And this causes a breakdown of human relationship. This is a breakdown of human relationship. And whereas before God had a special relationship with man, now we find out in verse 8 that Adam and Eve hid themselves while God was walking through the garden. God is in the garden wanting to hang out with Adam and Eve, but they're nowhere to be found. Hard to have a relationship with someone who doesn't want to be with you, right? This is a breakdown of divine relationship. And whereas before, Adam made a promise to be wholly devoted to his wife, Eve, uh, to his wife Eve, now he blames her for their problem in verse 12. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. He sells her out. Whatever happened to being bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh, Adam? This is injustice. This is injustice. And whereas before, being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth was supposed to be a good thing, now God turns it around in verse 16 and says, I will greatly increase your pain and your conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Parenting was supposed to be nothing but joy. But now it is associated with pain and with grief. I mean, just ask Eve. Not only did she bear Cain and Abel in pain, but Cain grew up to be a violent son who murdered his own brother. You don't think that affected Eve? The only pain from mother more severe than bringing a child into this world is having to watch him be taken out of it. Parenting now brings suffering by the hands of the children themselves. And this is rebellion. This is rebellion. And whereas before, the world was supposed to be in a constant state of rest, a perpetual seventh day, if you will, now God shocks Adam in verse 17 when he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Instead of rest, humans will live in a constant state of unrest. Instead of peace, humanity must endure unending war and division. Instead of comfort, mankind must suffer pain and hardship all the days of his long life. This is is chaos. This is chaos. And whereas before the point of all of creation centered around God himself, the creator of the universe, now man has jockeyed for God's position and authority. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, look, the man has become like one of us. Look, the man has become 
like one of us knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve have opted to sit on God's throne for a day. And this is self-exaltation. And as a result of this, this sin must be punished. Whereas before the tree of life symbolized permanent life and health and vitality, now God shoves Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, away from the tree of life, and he stations a cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance, a sword that kind of turns in every direction so that there's no way back in to gain access to the tree of life. The picture is kind of of, of a dome over Edom, and the dome is a flaming sword wielded by an angry angel. I mean, it's a really weird picture, but that's the idea here. God cuts off any hope of living. This is death. This is death. Now, why in the whole wide world did I just spend the last 30 minutes walking through the creation story? Why did I do that? What on earth does this have to do with the Ten Commandments? Here's the point. And this is where you can actually begin officially taking notes now. This is great. The point is this. All the Ten Commandments are meant to shine as a beacon of hope in a fallen world. All of the Ten Commandments are meant to shine as a beacon of hope in a fallen world. Like a lighthouse leads sailors who are lost at sea back to the safety of the shore, the Ten Commandments guide the world back to the shores of creation as if to say, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end. There is a way back to the way things were. And we, God's people, have the answer. We have the answer. That's the point. It's a beacon of hope that shines in a fallen world. We see this through each of the Ten Commandments. First commandment, although Adam and Eve exalted themselves to be like God, knowing good and evil, we will refuse to allow gods to come before the one true God because there is just one creator. The second commandment, although Eve opted to listen to a creature rather than to exercise dominion over it as God's image bearer, we will not make an idol or any image of creation. We reject all forms of idolatry because we bear God's image, and God is the only one who has the right to make an image. Third commandment, although, God want, although, although Adam and Eve wanted to hide themselves from God and wanted nothing to do with him, we will not take the Lord's name in vain. We will take him seriously. We will call on the name of the Lord because he wants a personal and a divine relationship with us. Fourth commandment, although the curse has locked the world into a state of unending chaos and men must toil and labor day after day, we will keep the Sabbath holy. We will set aside one day a week in honor of the seventh day because we know a permanent day of rest is coming. Fifth commandment, although there is now pain in childbirth and children grieve their parents, we will honor our fathers and our mothers. We will uphold the authority of parents in this world and all God-given authorities because that is the way God's designed it. Sixth commandment, although, God, although access to the tree of life has been cut off and no one can escape death, we won't murder. We will protect life as best as we can because we know the tree of life still stands in God's heart. There is the hope of eternal life. Seventh commandment, although Adam and Eve became ashamed of their nakedness, 
and the purity of marriage was tainted, we won't commit adultery. Instead, we'll pursue, we'll pursue purity. We'll endorse relationships the right way because God himself is relational. Eighth commandment, although Adam and Eve stole from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we won't steal. We vow to respect the rights of others because God has freely given us many other things to enjoy. The ninth commandment, although Adam failed to take responsibility for his sin and preferred to shift the blame to Eve, we won't bear false witness. We, will, we won't lie or pervert justice. We'll defend others, even if it means our own harm, because we're committed to justice. And the Tenth Commandment, although Eve allowed her desires to get the best of her, we won't covet what is not ours. We'll remain content, because everything is created according to its kind. Everything has a proper place. The Ten Commandments are meant to shine as a beacon of hope that God did not lose at the fall. He did not lose. This didn't catch God off guard. He is aware of the problem, and better yet, he has a plan to solve it. He has a plan. The Ten Commandments are not the solution to the problem. The Ten Commandments shed light on what the answer to the problem really is. And you want to know what the answer is? The creation story gives us a sneak peek. Genesis 3.15 talks about that a seed will come from the woman to crush the serpent's head. The solution in this text is an unnamed person down through history to who will, who's, who's, go, who's going to right all the wrongs that happened in the fall. And we know him better by his name. His name is Jesus. The Ten Commandments begin to point us to Jesus. That's the point of the Ten Commandments. The purpose is to broadcast who God is and what he's all about. It's to show your love for God by your love for others, and it's to shine as a beacon of hope in a fallen world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have a great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments point us to that. And I pray, Father, that we will be motivated to live out these Ten Commandments so that the gospel will shine, fire, shine forth so brilliantly and Jesus will be exalted in the way he should. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.